The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Last Sunday, Darren Brink, one of our downtown elders, preached the final sermon in this series on Colossians. And so this morning, I'm returning to the book of Acts. We, we left Acts six months ago um, as we entered into Advent. And we left off in Acts 17. So I'm going to pick up at Acts 18 this morning. And then just to tell you the plan for the summer here, uh, we're going we're gonna to finish Acts by the end of July. And so what that means is we're going to take larger units. The, the narratives are longer, but we'll do highlights of the, of the narrative in the book of Acts. And then, Lord willing, we will, we will conclude Acts by the end of July and then begin a new series entering into the fall in August on our shared mission and our convictions and our strategies as Bethlehem Baptist Church in downtown Minneapolis. So you can pray for that. In fact, why don't I pray for that right now as I begin. Father in heaven, I pray looking forward and and looking to the immediate. uh, Looking forward, I pray for your grace and blessing on our walking through the book of Acts as we move through these next narratives. I pray that you'd have a word for us and bless us. And, and then as we approach the fall, we pray for, for clarity and unity and a sense of common mission and purpose and just knit us together as we, as we move into the, the new school year. And then, and then for, the, for the immediate here now, I pray for your, your help as I open up this text. What a, what a great text. What a great word from Jesus to Paul. Speak to us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the thesis of the, of the whole book of Acts, the, the, the history of the early church captured by Luke, is uh, in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And, and we've been seeing that as we went through Acts last year. And uh, we saw the Spirit fall at Pentecost, and we saw the scattering of the church in Acts 8. And then Paul set out on his three missionary journeys. And right now, we are approaching the end of his second missionary journey. He had already been to the cities of Philippi, uh, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. And if you remember in Athens, it's in the previous chapter in Acts 17... Athens was this very intellectual city, I would call it a university town, a city of the great philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, still influential in some measure today. And so Athens had attracted not only teachers of wisdom, but students of wisdom and people hungry for wisdom from around the the known world. And so now our text begins with Paul having left Athens and walking 50 miles or so into the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth is different from Athens. It was not an academic center so much as a a large economic and political center situated on this narrow strip of land that joined the the bulk of Greece with this this, uh, southern Greek peninsula. It was right on this narrow strip of land so that 
so that travel north and south had to go through Corinth. And travel east to west by the sea cut through Corinth. And so it's this intersection of of economic travel, commerce, and therefore political influence as people are coming in and out and in and out. It's a city of diverse peoples from cities and countries from all over the world and all walks of life. And, you know, you think, why? I I could ask this of Paul's wider strategy. Paul, why did you go to the cities that you went to? Christ had commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations. And so we can see really quickly that, that Paul goes to cities, several large cities, like, like, um, uh, uh, like uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Ephesus and Corinth and Rome. <laughs> Gosh. But several medium-sized cities like, like Athens, but hugely influential. What is he doing? Paul says in Romans, quoting from the prophecy of Isaiah, like, this is my job, that those who have never been told of Christ will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So he goes to these cities because that's where the people are, and that's where the influence is, and that's where the roads go. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's really a remarkable strategy gospel strategy to change the world by bringing the gospel to cities. Now, it strikes me, Bethlehem, that we are in a location that's like Athens and like Corinth. It's diverse. The Twin Cities is amazingly diverse. Diverse peoples, diverse cultures, diverse ethnicities, diverse economically and educationally and vocationally. We're a city of influence, uh, influence both through education and commerce. You know, students from all around the country and all around the world come here for, for training and education and uh, businesses here uh, influence the world uh, in, their, in their commerce. And And so, much as Christ sent Paul to Corinth or to these other cities, God in his providence sent the the founders of Bethlehem to this little spot of land on the edge of the city of Minneapolis 151 years ago. in order that the gospel would be proclaimed and spread from here, from this place, on out into the neighborhoods and the nations for decades, a century and a half. And we're not done. We had a meeting in in, uh, Ken Curry's office, and on his whiteboard he had, God put us here. He did. Just like God sent Paul into Corinth. Now to the text. What, what, can, what, what does it take to persevere in gospel ministry in a city like Corinth? Or I could say, what does it take to persevere in gospel ministry in a city like Minneapolis? 
I'm going to draw four things from this text. Here's, here's my outline. Number one, it takes knowing Christ and Him crucified. It takes gospel partnerships, number two. It takes persistence in proclamation. And number four, it takes hope. It takes hope. Hope in Christ. So number one, knowing Christ, verse one. After this, after leaving Athens, uh, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, <laughs> I stop right there. Why do I see this verse, Acts 1, as this act of knowing Christ, this act of faith in the crucified Christ? I say that because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, he tells the, the Corinthian church later, he says, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 1, or 2 verse 1, Ah, and I, when I came to you, when I came to Corinth, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, like I might have in Athens, because it was that kind of town. For I, did des- I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So, verse 1, you know, it says he went to Corinth. But 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 1 says he came with, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Not with lofty speech and wisdom, but trembling. One thing I didn't mention in my description of Corinth, and maybe you noticed this, is Corinth had another reputation. It it had a reputation for sin. It, it It was sin city. Corinth was the home of the temple of Aphrodite or Venus, the goddess of love. And historians say that each night 1,000 female slaves in the service bondage of this idol were sent into the streets at night as prostitutes. Imagine this. so the sailors would come in and out of town. It's human trafficking. And at, in the day, to Corinthianize, for someone to be a Corinthianizer would be to mean that they were one who practiced sin and every kind of sexual immorality and drunkenness and lawlessness. And our city is not immune to such sinfulness, is it? So perhaps Paul's trembling and weakness and fear comes from the pervasiveness of sin that he knows awaits him in Corinth. Or perhaps it's the flat-out flat blatant disregard of God and the worship of idols like Venus. 
Or perhaps it's this pervading sense that this city is in the grip of of Satan. (laughs) That he trembles. I mean, Paul, Paul knows that proclaiming Christ crucified who died for our sins to a sinning people will get a lot of people mad and it'll get you killed. Proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah to Jewish people will get you killed. Proclaiming repent of your sin to a people who take pride in it will get you killed. But he entered the city overcoming his weakness and his fear and his much trembling. And he says how he entered in in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So in he comes, overcoming the fear, overcoming the trembling, resolve to know Christ and him crucified. What does that mean? I thought of three things. Certainly it means to know Christ who was crucified for me. You know, I so love Galatians 2.20. I quote it a lot where Paul says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul's entering conscious of Christ crucified for him, but also I think he's conscious of Christ crucified, the Christ who gave his life a ransom for many. So he comes in with, no, Christ has been crucified for me and for many. And he comes with a sense of Christ crucified in the sense that Christ called us, his disciples, all his followers. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Paul, mindful of the crucified Christ, takes up his own cross Embracing whatever hardships and persecutions and sufferings might come his way in the cause of the gospel and follows the crucified Christ, Christ living in him and gospeling the city through him. So that's number one. Here's number two. Number one, knowing Christ and knowing Christ crucified sustains gospel ministry in a city like Corinth or Minneapolis. Number two, gospel partnerships. You know, perhaps in response to Paul's prayers, God quickly gave him new gospel partnerships as soon as he gets to town. He's walking into town. It's clear that he doesn't know anybody because he meets Aquila and Priscilla, and, and they say, hey, I uh, better read the text. Verse 2. Uh, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. 
recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. So he meets Aquila and Priscilla. Claudius, the emperor of Rome, threw all the Jewish people out of Rome. Uh, First century historian really has good evidence that this is because of the gospel. The gospel was causing conflict, disruption among the Jewish community, as we can see all over the book of Acts. And, and therefore, Claudius just said, all you Jews, out! So, Aquila, who is Jewish, leaves with his wife Priscilla, who is not. It's a mixed marriage. And uh, by the mercy of God and in God's hard providence, their expulsion from Rome leads to this gift of a life-altering partnership in gospel ministry with the Apostle Paul. That's pretty good. And since they were tent makers, Paul moves in with them. You know, like, who are you? I'm Paul. You know, Aquila, Priscilla, Paul. Uh, What do you do? I'm a tent maker. So am I. (laughs) <laughs> so, so they invite Paul to, to stay with them. I, mean, I read it's, it's not uncommon for tradespeople to, to band together like that, but it's also Christian hospitality and, and support of the gospel. And, and so Paul joined them making tents during the week, and then every Sabbath he's preaching in the synagogue, and that was his pattern, trying to pers- persuade Jews and non-Jewish converts in the synagogue that Jesus was the Messiah. And, uh, you know, just a, a note about the partnership of, of Priscilla and Aquila. Paul mentions them at the end of Romans, says, they risk their necks for me. So they, they are sweet partners. And I'm thinking, what a great providence. Paul, with his fear and trembling and weakness, boom. He meets new partners. Priscilla and Aquila. And not only that, you know, just, in, you know, just say, read on. And, and uh, Silas and Timothy come rolling in. They arrive from Macedonia. Uh, and with them, you know, his old partners, these are, these are the true partners, you know, long time. Silas and Timothy are coming now. He's got these old partners and these new partners, and now they're here in Corinth, like assembling the gospel work and relying on the grace of God. And, and, and Paul says of their arrival, this is in uh, Philippians. So Silas and Timothy came from Philippi, from Macedonia, and they brought money. They brought financial support, mission support. Paul says of them to, to the church at Philippi, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. And you sent the funds by Silas and Timothy, and that enabled Paul to give, give himself to the work of the gospel. And he didn't have to make tents anymore once the support came. You know, oh, 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 how I hope and pray that that grace of partnership in ministry at all these levels would, would remain here at Bethlehem. 
you know, partnership on the small scale with old partners and new partners in the work of the gospel. Uh, it's, it's such a grace to me just to gather at Waban Park and enjoy fellowship with each other. Last Wednesday, the sense that God gave me you and God gave you me and not to be so self-centered, God gave us one another as partners in the work of the gospel. What a grace. There are believers and there are maybe times in our lives when we will have to go it alone. Maybe in a prison cell or after a stroke in a nursing home. So just praise God and enjoy the partnerships that he has given us. And then this other level, this partnering with our, I say our, our global partners like Paul by sending support and money and equipping and training and doing leadership preparation in order to send well and, and, and support with our generosity. Oh, I, I just... Just let, Lord, preserve this grace of gospel partnership in its smallest intimate levels here and its broader global dimensions from here to the world as, uh, as, uh, as the days unfold here at Bethlehem. So that's number two, partnership in, in the gospel. Here's number three. You know, how, how do you sustain gospel ministry in a city like Corinth or or here. Number three, persistence in proclamation. Persistence in proclamation. You know, it was Paul's protocol upon arriving in a city to first go to the synagogue to preach to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles, and that's what he did here. And... uh, So you see the picture of him in verse 4. Every Sabbath, he's reasoning from the scriptures that Christ, that Christ was Jesus. And before long, the response from those in the synagogue was hostile and resistant. Verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So, so, you know, he carries around this burden for his own people. You know, he, he so longs for the Jewish people to embrace their Messiah. And yet, when the opposition and reviling comes, he sticks with the mission and turns to the Gentiles. His loyalty to Christ triumphs over his any kind of sense of ethnic or tribal loyalty, and he brings the good news to the Gentiles, to the nations all over the known world. And he doesn't have to go far. It's, it's really kind of interesting. You know, he goes next door. <laughs> He goes next door uh, to the house of Titius Justus, a Gentile convert to Judaism, 
verse seven. And there the breakthrough of the gospel in the city of Corinth takes place. Verse eight, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, must be a Gentile convert to Judaism. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. His entire household believes. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, bringing the gospel to the synagogue. He's reviled and kicked out of the synagogue. He turns to the Gentiles. He goes to the house next door. And boom, gospel breakthrough begins. So the power of the gospel to beget faith in Christ is manifest in the conversion of the synagogue ruler and the household of the synagogue ruler and many of the Corinthians. You know, I call this persistence in proclamation. What's it, what's it take to minister in the city? It takes persistence in proclamation. Um, it's our responsibility to speak the gospel and to trust God with the, the power of his word and the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through his word to work for the conversion of those who hear. Our, our, our task is, is to speak. And, and it's interesting to me, you know, surely Paul had in his mind when he came to town that this city is so sinful and so far gone, are they ever going to believe? It's, it's, so it's with that in mind I, I read, this is in 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, Ceases, you know, you Corinthian believers now, a few years later, re- remember some of you were sexually immoral and idolaters and adulterers and were practicing homosexuality and some of you were thieves and greedy and drunkards and revilers and swindlers. That's what you were before the gospel, but... You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I love it. Persistence in proclamation. Ours is to speak. Ours is not to judge. Oh, these people are too far gone. I better not speak the gospel. They won't understand. Of course they won't understand. It's a miracle. And we do labor like Paul did. Paul labors to persuade and argue and make as much sense as he can, but ultimately it's not up to us. Point number three. Persistence in proclamation is what it takes for gospel ministry in a city like Corinth or ours. And then the last point is hope. Hope in Christ, hope in his promises. The the distinction I'm making between the first point, knowing Christ and him crucified, and this last point, hope in Christ, is the first point I would call 
uh, past great, hoping, uh, trusting in God's, in Christ's past grace and his present favor. You know, he's been crucified for me. Uh, he died for me 2,000 years ago, and all the benefits of that death are mine now, and I'm enjoying them now. I'm living by faith now in what he did a long time ago and what he's doing right now. But then in this one, I'm trying to It's an aspect of faith when your faith turns to the future and what God is going to do. It's called hope. I love hope. I I really do. I love hope. We die without hope. What God is going to do is what I'm saying in number four. So as I imagine it, Paul went to bed one night exhausted, maybe frustrated. And as I imagine it, he was thinking about the events of the past several weeks in Corinth, you know, how he had met these new partners, Priscilla and Aquila, and how God brought Silas and Timothy. And then he was thinking about how he was rejected in the synagogue. And, and yet, Crispus and his household were saved and many others. And I'm just imagining, this is Kenny's imagination now, it's not in the Bible. I'm imagining him, him falling asleep. I mean, clearly he's asleep in this text. He falls asleep in the deep of the night, and I'm thinking these memories of persecution and hardship and opposition that are cataloged in his mind and his memory are just flowing through the, the Jewish jealousy in Antioch, the mistreatment in Iconium, having been stone almost to death they thought he was dead in Lystra his arrest and imprisonment in Philippi the riot in Thessalonica the cold and distant reception of the academics in Athens maybe even his split with Barnabas just all the hardships <laughs> And in the dark of the night, Jesus comes to him in a vision, in a dream, and said these powerful words, verse 9 and 10. This is gold. Jesus said to Paul, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. So Paul wakes up in the morning. It's like like the word to Joshua. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Neither be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. He's he's surely mindful of the promise of Jesus echoed here in the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations. All authority has been given to me. I am with you always. (laughs) So I I assume we have the sentences of verses 9 and 10 because Paul wrote them down. He writes, Jesus spoke to me. He writes it down. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, 
Here's the promise, future grace, the hope. For I am with you now, tomorrow, forever. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. You know, people say, some say that the, the Calvinists who believe in election, in the sovereign grace of God and salvation, shut down evangelism. Because, well, if, if God chooses people to be saved, well, then you don't need to evangelize. That is a paper tiger, a straw man, that is baloney. Because I'll tell you, this phrase empowered Paul and countless missionaries ever since to enter these, to enter the cities, enter the jungles, Paul to enter Corinth, us to enter our city, our space, as we're scattered around the Twin Cities with confidence. that Christ has many in this city, in your neighborhood, who are my people. Chosen by God from before the foundation of the world, predestined for conformity to Christ, awaiting the call of the gospel to come. So, This phrase, rather than, you know, some view of God's sovereignty and salvation preventing evangelism is just fuel for it, right? God has people here. Christ has people. He's bought people with his blood. Mine is to speak the gospel as intelligently and as intelligibly as I can. And just watch God claim his people by the grace of faith in Christ Jesus because they're his I love it I love it so these are four takeaways for us here as Bethlehem downtown may we resolve like Paul to know Christ and him crucified crucified for us crucified for many and follow the crucified Christ and take up our cross and follow him. May we preserve and cultivate and enjoy gospel partnerships. This is a gift that we can be in partnership together in the gospel to be enjoyed and and stewarded for for the advancement of the kingdom. And for the salvation, I should say, of our own children, which is advancement of the kingdom in and of itself. Number three, persist in gospeling others. Uh, We must seek the grace of God, the power of God to speak the gospel in gospeling other people. Do not be afraid. Do not keep silent. 
speak, for I am with you. And, uh, and we need to rest in hope that God will prove true to his promises, promises such as this one. I have many people in this city, Bethlehem, speak the gospel and trust me to work for the salvation of the many that I have purchased already with the blood of Christ. And I'm with you always. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for your word. Thanks for this text and the assurance of your favor, the confidence that Christ is with us, and the vision of your sovereign grace in calling people to yourself, purchasing people to yourself already from this city. Empower, empower our, our witness, empower our impact, empower our presence here at Bethlehem, that we would be to the praise of your glorious grace in the days and months and years and decades to come, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.